what I'm going to go is I'm just going to go for a few minutes and I'm going to lay out. Remember I said there was four basic arguments for the existence of God and I wanted you to at least be aware of these other three. We already looked at the cosmological argument and I want you to be aware of there's three more, the ontological, the moral, and the teleological. Now let me show you the ontological argument. This has to do with argument from existence. If a perfect or necessary being can be conceived, it must exist. That's how this argument is simply stated. Now, I'm going to show you a categorical syllogism that is actually invalid. I checked it, and I think, I forget why it was invalid, but it's, it is invalid. God is a being that has perfection. Existence is a perfection. Therefore, God is a being that must have existence. Okay? Now, apart from it being invalid, let's just say we could get this into valid form the big problem with this, my critique of it, and the critique that I've seen others give of it, is premise two. Notice this argument says existence is a perfection. Now, the problem with saying it's a perfection is it's a misunderstanding. Again, um, we're getting into equivocation, really, because existence does not add quality to an object. It merely asserts its reality. Okay? Does that make sense? So the, the, the problem is, is to say that, in fact, existence is a perfection really is a misnomer. It's kind of like saying what does smell sound like or what does blue taste like. or it, it, it's, We're mi- mixing categories, you see. What's that? <laughs> that's right. Then we're all perfect because we all exist. That's right. It would be at least some perfection within us, right? So, again, it's been critiqued. And, by the way, there's two different types of ontological arguments. I'm giving you one that was very old. And I don't know who this came from originally. The next one, this is the next form, actually came from Anselm. And he actually lived, I think it was around 11 to 1200 A.D. in that range. And this is what Anselm, his version goes like this. He says, premise one, if God exists... He must be a necessary being. So remember, that's a hypothetical syllogism there, right? A necessary being cannot not exist. Now, follow me through on this. What I see is another fallacy because cannot not is an affirmative. And so therefore, what he's doing is he's affirming the consequent. So there's a boo-boo as well, you see? So that would be an, or a formal fallacy, right? So again, it's not valid, but nonetheless, here's the rest of the argument. I'm, and I'm just taking these arguments, by the way. I got them from Norman Geisler's apologetics manual. It's called the Baker's Encyclopedia of Apologetics. So I'm trusting that he is, in fact, um, getting to their material accurately. But it is invalid. But anyway, it says, therefore, God exists. Now, again, the critique of this is this. This proves something about God's nature but not his existence, you see. So what we're doing now is, again, we're talking about apples and oranges because this argument, yes, it says something about if God exists, what is he like, but it doesn't really prove his existence. You see, it's missing the mark of what we're trying to do. Remember, we're trying to take arguments and prove the existence of God to atheists, all right? This is merely an argument that tells us something about a God who exists, Okay. So I think it misses the mark. But now let me show you one that I think is a little bit more compelling. It's the moral argument. Now, at the outset, it, it seems like it's somewhat subjective. I'll explain why. Here's the moral argument. C.S. Lewis actually wrote one, and this is, comes from his book, Mere Christianity. The definition of the moral argument is moral laws presuppose a moral lawgiver. And it goes like this. Moral laws imply a moral lawgiver, premise one, premise two. There is an objective moral law, and premise three, therefore, there is a moral lawgiver. 
Okay. Now this is actually in valid form. All right. We have uh, three terms, and we have a distributed middle, and we and it, it complies with all seven rules. I, I looked at it earlier. Now here's how I would critique it. Here's the issue. If you use this out on the street, here's what they're going to take issue with. Premise two, namely there is an objective moral law. That may be taken issue with because is there really an objective moral law that is agreed upon? And the key phrase is agreed upon. So, for instance, I do believe that there is, in fact, a universal moral law that comes from God. That does exist. The only thing is, when you go to the general revelation and you look at the condition of mankind, can you ever convince someone on the street that this, in fact, exists? Because, for instance, you look at certain people, they think, I'm just going to be a little political here for a moment, but they think killing babies, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, I think that's vile and wicked and evil. And yet, these are the people who would normally stand up for the rights of terrorists in like Guantanamo. Okay, we, have, we can't even agree, to me, I mean, it's absurd, right? But we can't even agree on basic moral things. So trying to take the argument that there is, in fact, a moral law that exists that's objective is a hard sell. But it's true. There is an objective moral law because there is an objective moral lawgiver who we know to be God. Here's how I go about it when I argue this. Um, I actually learned it from a pastor many years ago, and he asked the question, he says, is murder against the law because it's wrong, or is it wrong because it's against the law? And that gets people thinking. And what it does is if someone were to claim, like a lot of relativists do, that murder is merely wrong because it's against the law, we would have to conclude what the Nazis did was in fact okay or moral because the majority allowed it, you see? So in other words, if 51% of a given group of people think it's okay to put the Jews in the ovens, then it's moral. But we know that it is in fact not moral, right? So the conclusion, therefore, is you have to say that murder is against the law because it's wrong. That's the only conclusion. Otherwise, People should be afraid because any time the majority deems something that is in fact evil to be good and right, the minority will suffer. Okay, So this appears to be a weakness in the moral argument with premise two. However, if you get people to start thinking about it, um, I think you can get some traction there. You see what I'm saying? It just takes a little bit more effort because, again, not everybody agrees because of the moral depravity of our culture that there is, in fact, a moral law. Well, let me show you the final one, and this is one I think is really powerful. It's the teleological argument. And I'm going to actually have Bob uh, come up because Bob has a really good uh, def- actually example from his own life of this. But real short, a teleological, remember, telos, again, is goal or reason. That's It comes from the Greek, telos. And it simply means the design of creation presupposes a designer. So here it is in the categorical syllogism, and this is valid. Premise one, everything designed must have a designer. Premise two, the universe is designed. Here's the conclusion. Therefore, the universe must have a designer. Now, I think this is powerful. Now, here we'll see premise one and premise two will be challenged, but I believe They will hold up under scrutiny when the degree of design is explored. And I'm going to show you some examples of that. But before that, Bob, you have a great example of evidence that you had as an engineering student uh, when you were at the University of Iowa. Why don't you, I just thought that was, or Iowa, oh, sorry. (laughs) It's blasphemy. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, before I was actually converted, and after I had left the church, 
in, in total unbelief. I, I was taking organic chemistry at Iowa State University. I was in a huge lecture hall with over 300 students, and the head guy that teaches the big uh, plenary session was doing the lecturing, and he, on the chalkboard, put up this big molecule. We were studying a little bit of biochemistry, and he was demonstrating how carbon, the way carbon can bond in various ways is the only reason life is possible. Wow. Okay, all life is carbon-based. Okay, and so he was showing a heme molecule, which is a part of the blood that allows it to carry oxygen and then release the oxygen to the cell that needs it. Hmm. And so there were carbon-carbon double bonds and triple bonds and CH2 and CH3 in the typical kind of a molecule. And in the middle is this Fe, the iron. iron. And it's fairly complex. And when he got done putting all that on the board, he turned around and said to us students, if one carbon bond in this molecule was different, we'd all be dead. Wow. Because this thing would not carry oxygen and release it to the cell. And sitting there, he didn't say anything about God. Hmm. But I was sitting there, total agnostic, wow. and right on the spot, I knew that God created the universe. Wow. And I'd never heard of a teleological argument. <laughs> but there was a powerful one that the Lord hmm. just brought to me to get me thinking. And that was in March of 1971, July, I was converted to Christ. Wow, praise God. So that, that is a powerful yeah. argument. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. That, that's great. It's a great example. And again, we see in God's sovereignty, him using means by which he is converting your soul. Now, you didn't become a Christian at that point. Later, you received the gospel. You repented of your sins and you trusted in Christ. And that's the, you know, at which point you become saved. But isn't it interesting that in God's providence, he's using good arguments through even his created order to bring you to the recognition that, yes, he exists, right. and uh, bringing you to the point where, yes, you'll, uh, in fact, believe the gospel. Let me show you some more example of the teleological argument. I'm going to give just, in fact, um, what you mentioned, Bob, is actually in this article. I'm going to read you some more from, this is uh, Hugh Ross, and I'm just going to read you some more amazing things about the teleological argument. Again, the teleological argument says that everything is so precise that we see in creation that it had to be designed. And remember, when we're using our cosmological argument, that's our, that's our best argument. But what we're going to do is we can follow it up with a teleological argument. So we can use this as well. Now let me just read you some things that we see, for instance, in physics and in chemistry that actually bolsters our case. Hugh Ross talks about this nuclear force found in particles. He says, the strong nuclear force coupling constant holds together the particles in the nucleus of an atom. If the strong nuclear force were slightly weaker, multi-proton nuclei would not hold together. Hydrogen, therefore, would be the only element in the universe. If this force were slightly stronger, not only would hydrogen be rare in the universe, but the supply of the various life-essential elements heavier than iron, in other words, uh, elements resulting from fission of very heavy elements, would be insufficient either way, life would be impossible. So again, we see the fine-tuning of the universe and the created order, you see. Now, remember that example I showed you, people, how they might try to say that the universe could self-create itself, and they had the multiverse people, they thought, you know, one universe creates another universe. Well, why would one universe on any given Tuesday at 3 p.m. 
decide to create this universe. You've got that issue. And the other issue is how could another universe that is completely an inanimate object create with such exactness? You see, we're looking at precision. And I forget the mathematical number. It was a large one. It's like 10, 1 times 10 to the 53rd power, the odds of this type of design coming about by quote-unquote chance or randomness, okay? So again, this is a very devastating argument. The, the difficulty when you're on the street is pulling out all this information, okay? That's why the cosmological argument, I think, is better. Let me give you one more, and then we'll, we'll open it up for discussion. Um, well, actually, I've got another idea, too, I want to just talk about. But um, number, here, listen to this one. The electromagnetic coupling constant binds electrons to protons and atoms. This is Hugh Ross, and he says... The characteristics of the orbits of electrons about atoms determines to what degree atoms will bond together to form molecules. If the electromagnetic coupling constant were slightly smaller, no electrons would be held in orbits around nuclei. If it were slightly larger, an atom could not share an electron orbit with other atoms. Either way, molecules and hence life would be impossible. And he goes on and on. He has 16 of these on this sheet. And again, friends, it just shows you the design by which the universe has been designed. It shows you the small, uh, very small parameters that must exist in order for there to be life at all. Another example that I've often thought about is you realize most life is in the northern hemisphere. And the actual pattern that our Earth takes around the sun is elliptical, right? Well, it's interesting that the tilt of the Earth on its axis when we're the furthest away from the sun, the northern hemisphere is actually pointed towards the sun, right? And the reason why that's important is if we were the furthest away in our elliptical orbit and the northern hemisphere was pointed away from the sun, we'd all freeze to death, okay? So we even see it in our own solar system, this fine-tuning so that life can exist, okay? And again, that shows you that, in fact, it seems to be designed, and not only does it seem to be designed, it's mathematically really impossible for it not to be when you look at the equations that uh, astrophysicists like Hugh Ross have put out and others. Okay? So that is another argument that bolsters our cosmological argument. All right? And again, the evidence is overwhelming. Now, with that, you guys, I just wanted to throw an idea out to you. Um, next week, I, I didn't get into evolution this week, and I think I am going to do that next week. I want to get into evolution. Oftentimes, when I'm on the street, I don't get into it. Because you can't look at the fossil record, right? Nobody can dig out fossils and look at it. You can't really, it's hard to debate fossil records and stuff. But there are some other arguments we can use, and I'm going to talk about that next week. Because I want to, I think we have to hit Darwinian evolution. The, the point being is, I want you to be aware that this argument is the one I would stick with. Because if you win the cosmological argument, that has to do with the beginning of everything. You don't have to get into Darwinian evolution. Does that make sense? And that's why I think it's such a particularly powerful argument to use. Okay? You can just leave Darwinian evolution in the, in the drawer if you want. But I think we should get into it next week nonetheless to help equip ourselves to make a reasoned defense in that case as well. So with that, let's um, just open it up to any discussion that may, you guys might have. you got a question back there, Bob. So how do you respond to my ex-husband? A scientist okay. who you could say all these things and he would agree. And at the end of everything, he'd say, so, yeah. so, yeah. because he, he would agree God does exist, God yeah. did exist, 
but he looks at this imperfect world mm. and says, obviously this young God screwed up, threw up his hands, and walked away. Yeah. You know, there you go. Yeah, and so he, his issue isn't necessarily atheism. He doesn't like the God that has revealed himself because of the supposed problem with evil. I mean, that would be his take. And we'll actually be dealing with that later, but first of all, I think we should pray for him. There is a man that um, needs to hear the gospel over and over. He believes that there is, in fact, a God. And I know, again, remember the difference between proof and persuasion. We can prove our case, but we may not persuade him. And it's a heart issue. And ultimately, it is the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that gives one the ability to believe. That's what Titus 3.5 says, that we were not saved by anything that we have done, but by the, rewa- the washing and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. So that's what he has to have. He has to have... God work on his heart. But let me just give you a brief answer real quickly to the answer of evil that I like, that I see in Scripture. And it is this, that the the problem with evil, people say, well, if they've tried to put us in a quandary. If God is good and evil exists, then he's either not powerful enough to do anything about it or he doesn't care that there's evil. In other words, he's not, he's either, they put us in a dilemma, he's either not good because he won't do anything about the evil, or he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. But what the scriptures clearly declare is that there's a day that's coming when he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. And he is actually going to use evil for the greatest good. He is going to use evil, in fact, and even bring glory to himself. One of my favorite passages in Romans, where in Romans chapter 3, Paul says that God forever, he passed over the sins that were previously committed so that he may be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And it's funny, Jim and I were just talking about this earlier tonight. Isn't it interesting, you guys, if we had never sinned, if God never allowed us to sin, he would forever be a just God, correct? However, now I'm not saying he or, you know, he is the one who caused us to sin. God forbid. We know that God causes no man to sin. We see that in the book of James, all right? But we are led away by our own lusts and our own temptations. We are the ones who made ourselves sinners in that sense. Okay? However, God in his sovereign will allowed it and realized that now forever he's also the justifier. Okay? Because he gets more glory now because he has justified a people to, be him, to, to become his own who were formerly wretched sinners. So now God even takes this evil that was perpetrated And now he's both the just and the justifier. He was always the just, but now he's the justifier too and he gets more glory. And there's a day that's coming, friends, when all the evil will be rectified. There's a day that we're going to be looking back at what happened to us. For instance, how would you know what it's like to have a good day that you feel healthy unless you've been sick? How do you know what it's like to have a day off unless you've worked hard? God is going to even take the evil things And he is going to juxtapose it to the glory that he creates in the new Jerusalem where we dwell with him forever. And so it's the redemptive purpose of evil. He's going to take it and do the most amount of good with it. And so so I think that that's the answer ultimately to evil, that he's completely sovereign over it and uses it. Uh, I would would agree that, you know, the, the argument would be to show that he is dealing with evil. And, uh, yes, yeah. and uh, he isn't uh, inactive in that, and that he ultimately will be triumphant over it. Yep. But getting back to this teleological argument, yeah. you talked about um, distance from the sun and the tilt of the axis. Yeah. Is there any literature on 
the fine, um, the narrow band of temperature that we have on the Earth that, uh, and what the statistical probability of that is that would enable uh, human life to exist? Um, you know, I don't know of a specific resource that you could go to. Do, do you guys have some ideas? Well, that's called the anthropic principle. If you just want to look that up, um, anthropic. Okay. Uh, in other words, that, um, and it's been around for a long time. There's books on it, but it, it can be shown that Earth was designed specifically to make human life possible on it, wow. and there's all kinds of constants. Yeah. That you could look at. And I remember studying that in seminary. And I don't yeah. remember what the textbook was. Yeah. Um, Alcor. <laughs> uh, for a, for a good uh, a good kind of layman's look at this, um, yeah. get a copy of the Privileged Planet. Oh, okay. Uh, DVD. Jan Markell has them oh, at her good. website. Who's and that? They, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's um, good. But but it's really good. I mean, I've seen it, and I've actually got a copy at home. Okay. Well, that's but, great. Uh, it's really good because it goes through uh, people in the different um, physicists and so on, and sure. it talks all about the things that you're just asking, you know, how do we know and what's the, the, the different uh, Yeah, it questions. was called The Privileged Planet, and it's on Jan Markell's website, olivetreeviews.org. That's good. Does anybody else have any other resources? I loved it. You know what I'd like to do at the end, um, or maybe even before the last class, is to gather um, a, like a bibliography and put all these sources up. And I'll be more diligent about that, and we can get them all online. That way you guys can have them. But I'm glad you asked that question, because now we can hunt for good resources for that. It would be good to have a good one. You showed how you know, the law of science proves that there's a God, or some people might say, if they don't want to believe in a God, intelligent designer. Yeah. And um, what was it, that movie Expelled we saw? I mean, yeah. this is what frustrates me. If our own scientists in America yeah. are showing... You know, and, and they're not even saying, they're not promoting Jesus. They're not even, they're just saying intelligent designer. And and yet yeah. they're being blackballed, getting their money taken away. It's, yeah. it's so politically incorrect. So it's like, it's almost like us average people or theologians are, have to be the ones to promote this. I mean, yeah. it's really sad. You know, it's funny. I make an argument that goes like this, and <laughs> this is new, and so don't throw me out if you don't like it, but... Um, the, what the argument, you know, think about the, um, the Second Amendment says that the Congress shall pass no law with respect to the establishment of religion or the prohibiting of the exor- free exercise thereof. And so, I'm sorry, the first. I'm sorry, the Second Amendment was we can go pack heat, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry, the First Amendment. <laughs> the First Amendment. So there's this establishment clause. What's interesting is here Congress shall pa- pass no law with the respect to the establishment of religion, the prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Isn't it interesting that just because you and I believe that the scientific evidence supports the creator, how is that the establishment of a national religion? And if, in fact, we can demonstrate, like I think we have conclusively, that it is the atheists who are taking things on faith far more than we are, what about their religious arguments? How come their faith isn't excluded? And I think we need to take these arguments. And again, I'm not trying to be political here, but I want our views to be heard. On the, I, I want our, our ideas win in the free marketplace of ideas. And the way that they try to get away from it is excluding us. They say, yes, we'll tolerate you Christians as long as you stay on the reservation. But if you bring your ideas into the public square, we'll try to pass laws. We'll try to exclude you. And I, and I don't think we should allow them to get away with it um, for their own sake. You know what I'm saying? We're the salt and light. If we're excluded, then 
what kind of impact can we have in the culture? So I agree with you. Um, I'm sorry to go on and on, but I get all fired up with that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, just to piggyback on what the woman was saying, well, that's all part of God's sovereign plan also. So all that is happening uh, for his endgame. I'm sorry. Say say it. It would be like the, he's talking about like the judgment of reprobation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said, Brian, yeah. They They don't want to hear. Did you want me to talk about that quantum physics or not? Oh, yeah, yeah. Talk about, um, because it's, I like the fact that you've studied it, but also uh, talking about your friend Ray, too, and what he's concluded. Okay, what, uh, here's what happened. I was out at uh, San Diego, and I wish they would have got some decent media of this. I'd love a video of it. But Dr. Frank Stutman from Australia, who's a physicist, and he's in charge of Labrie in Australia. I met at this conference. I heard him do a lecture on all of these quantum physics and how... New Agers are trying to use it to prove their monistic worldview. And he was refuting them. And one of the things he pointed out, and which brought me back to when I studied quantum physics, is that the reason it's difficult for people to understand it is that you can describe these electrons in their orbits mathematically, but you can't do it graphically. Hmm. But But the equations are valid, and the equations work. Okay. And, and he was showing some equations that would predict where the electron would be in orbit. Yeah. And those equations could be shown to be accurate, even though you can't stop the thing and make a picture of it. Sure. Okay? And then he also pointed out that this indeterminacy principle is simply describing that there are certain things we can't know. Right. It's not proving a monistic worldview. Yeah. And then, I think I mentioned this before, I'm glad I could remember a little bit from that class because when I debated Doug Padgett, he brought up quantum physics. Yeah. Remember yeah. that? Yep. <laughs> and just to try to prove this new age um, uh, monistic worldview or whatever, panentheistic would be his worldview. Yeah. And, I, and so I just brought up those equations because I remember I hated them when I did them. <laughs> it was the most miserable class I ever had in my life. <laughs> and, and he had these great big long differential calculus equations that I didn't get right very often. But here's what was my point. He's trying to prove that non-contradiction isn't valid at some atomic level. And the fact is, if the equation is valid, the terms in the equation have to differentiate from one another in order to work the equation. If non-contradiction is not true, you can't make an equation. What did he do then when I said that? I think he said, look at that chicken or something. <laughs> <laughs> look at that chicken. Over yeah, there. he had to somehow distract it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, he didn't, well, he, I mean, it is kind of a r- ironic. What's the chances that a pastor would have studied that? Yeah. Sure sign of a misspent you, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, and isn't it funny? The emerging church and open theists, they all love it, and for various nefarious reasons. For the same uh, reason that the um, New Agers do, because yeah. this guy wrote a book called The Tao of Physics, a guy yeah. named Chopra. Yeah. 20 years ago. Oh, yeah, Deepak Chopra? No, 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 no. No, not that one. <laughs> uh, the, the, the Tao is, 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 uh, sounds like a D, but it's T. Oh, it was a long oh. time ago. Okay. Yes, yeah, 20 years ago. Okay. You can look it up on Google. Yeah, Deepak isn't that smart. <laughs> and then, um, oh, he tries to use that stuff, too. Yeah, yeah. But anyhow, this Stutman did a whole hour lecture refuting that, yeah. that whole idea. Okay. And it was, it was so fabulous. If he's ever 
in America, I'd love to get him to come and give that lecture. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, isn't it funny? At the bottom line, what they're trying to do by using these things like quantum physics, the emerging church, the atheists, the open theists, really what it is is it's the question, has God really said that? They're trying to get around being bound to the scriptures. And they're trying to show, that, again, it's an absurdity that nothing can do something, but they're trying to dress it up so the average f- folks can't get a hold of it. And that way they can buffalo. I remember, I'm sorry, real quick, the kids in the class thought, boy, if our instructor is talking quantum physics, he must be really smart. And they took it hook, line, and sinker. So it's really sad. I've just thought of another one, too, um, as well as the privileged planet. There's a, a, a DVD that's put out by Answers in Genesis, I believe, and it's okay. called Four Power Questions. Like, like four, four, four Power Questions. Four and power the man questions. who's giving the talk is Mark Riddle. Okay. And that okay. goes through just like we've done tonight. Okay, on, good. On similar lines. Similar lines, great. Really clear. Good, good. good. Answers in Genesis. Yeah, that's great. I've read stuff from there, too. That's good. There's a, there's a book by Michael Behe. I don't know if you know who he is. Yeah. Uh, he does a book called Darwin's Black Box. I'll be using a lot of his material next week, in okay, fact. Yeah. Irreducible Complexity. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've started that book, and it's pretty good. It's very so. good. Very good. That's what I use if I get into evolution on the street. That's His material is what I use. So that's what we'll be covering. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys, thanks for coming. You guys have uh, really done a lot of hard work. I want to thank you for that, and we'll see you all next Thursday. Yeah. Thanks, you guys.